Feminine Chaos. I'm here today with Iona Italia. Iona is a writer, a podcaster, the editor of Aereo Magazine, uh, also the host of Aereo's Two for Tea podcast. And she's recently launched a Substack, which includes some really amazing essays, um, even as somebody who's not always a fan of the personal essay genre. These are very, very good and very provocative and interesting. Just a stellar example of the form. Um, And so I wanted to have her on today to talk about that. Iona, welcome. Thank you so much, Kat. It's a great pleasure to be on this podcast. I've enjoyed being on your podcast where we always seem to end up talking about sex. And uh, I think probably today <laughs> we're going to do some more of that. It's a, just, you know, a really fun topic that everyone likes. Um, so tell me about your decision to launch your Substack. Uh, you know, you've obviously been writing for a long time. You're the author of two books and, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time obviously curating other people's writing. You actually edited me for a piece of persuasion a long time ago. How did you decide to join the, the newsletter brigade? So, uh, you know, for a while I have been wanting to return to regular creative writing and over the past few years I have uh, the last time I I did kind of um, regular creative writing was when I was in India I kept a a blog um, of my time there and my explorations of my um, Indian Parsi Zoroastrian heritage since I took over as editor of Ario magazine in May I've been so busy editing the magazine and uh, any writing I've done recently has been writing for Ario, which is more drier, more argumentative, more political writing. And I felt that starting a Substack would force me um, to just do creative nonfiction writing regularly. And I've actually committed to Substack. I've I've uh, signed a contract committing to producing two new personal essays a month. And I also wanted to use the Substack as a home for my many occasional essays and blogs and um, long Facebook statuses. I've written these 5,000 word long Facebook statuses, little essays to my friends. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, And just have somewhere where I could put all of those musings and writings. So I am tying myself to the mast here using the using Odyssean self-control, I think it's what this is called, committing myself to having to do it regularly because I do love doing this kind of writing, but um, it's not something that is earning any money for me. And therefore it tends to get it tends to get kind of shoved aside among the many kind of other professional writing editing duties that I have. And really, it it's something that just uh, makes me, it makes me happy to write regularly. Mm-hmm. And you've called your Substack the Second Swim, which I, I love as a title. It just has a really nice mouthfeel. But tell me about how you decided to choose that title for your Substack. Uh, Sure. So I've actually written a whole personal essay about the choice of title, which is in the about section of the Substack itself. We'll link to that in the show notes just for those listening. I was visiting Sri Lanka in 2018. It was just before my birthday, my 49th birthday. 
And um, I was staying at this hostel that was right on the beach. And I went down early in the morning before anyone else was up at about sunrise. And the sea was looked extremely inviting. And it was, um, as I stepped in, the temperature was beautiful, like a kind of warm bathtub. And I could see that the sky was looking a little bit menacing. There were a few dark clouds in, in, in the air, but I thought, it'll be fine. And I am quite a strong swimmer, and I've swum in the sea many times before. So I dived in, and almost immediately I was grabbed by the ankles. It was as if there was some mischievous sea nymph had had just kind of tucked me under as a practical joke. And I felt myself being pulled out by this riptide to much further from shore than I wanted to go and heading straight for this big rock formation, um, this big underwater rock formation. And I kept being, for a little while, I was really struggling against the waves and I kept being repeatedly thrown against these rocks, grazing my hands and knees and elbows and being turned around like a, like a bobbin on a sewing machine, on the top of a sewing machine. That's how I felt, being kind of spun round and struck against the rocks again and again. And I, I luckily managed not to not to injure myself too badly, not to get knocked out. And at one point, there was a, a longer than usual gap between two waves. And in that gap, I just managed to kind of break free and swim to shore. So I arrived at shore feeling very, very shaken. And even just climbing back onto the beach was difficult. I was sucked back into the sea at every single step. And... um Later, when I came down to breakfast, the owners of the hostel told me, oh, by the way, you can't swim here. It's a very dangerous, they're very dangerous tides in this particular <laughs> stretch. And the place to swim is a little bit further down. And so um, that afternoon, I walked further down the beach and I found this uh, sheltered bay within a little coral reef, which was full of tourists bathing and snorkeling and things and I swam there and it was lovely and calm and so that was the the second swim and it felt symbolic to me for several reasons one was because I am I'm now 52 50 just turned 53 actually if I live to be 100 which I hope um, this will be the this is feels like the second half, the turning point, the midway point of my life. And it's a good time to take stock and re-examine and rediscover and take things in a in a new direction. William Wordsworth says that writing is poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility. So poetry and creative writing is also about reimagining, revisiting. You don't write about experiences at the very moment of experiencing them. You write about them in general afterwards, and you consult your memory of the experience, and you try to translate the raw stuff of experience into words. So that's also a kind of, a kind of calm second swim, a sort of re-examination of the storm from the safety of shore. 
Gosh, I love that. And um, it's interesting. I, I feel that this idea of sort of a moment of calm after being knocked around, either, you know, metaphorically or literally, and the ability to sort of discern the meaning in your experiences um, from a position of, of looking back, you know, of, of taking a moment, taking a breath and looking back at what happened to you and, um, and, and being able to talk about it in this very eloquent way. I think that that's something that you bring obviously to your writing, which is so, um, it's so graceful. And it, you know, the way that you write about your life feels, I'm not sure what the word is, you know, it, it feels calm but con- contented despite the fact that you've you know been through a lot of experiences that were quite painful but um you also occupy a sort of a similar position on twitter where you know you are a member of the i would say sort of heterodox intellectual category um you know you spend a lot of time engaging very thoughtfully on twitter and from a similar position of sort of looking back with equanimity, generosity, um, you know, having that sort of backward looking perspective rather than being very reactive in the moment. Um, And that's a very interesting and I think important role for people to play when so many people on Twitter and especially um, folks who are, you know, sort of in the young media category are often reacting very emotionally to things at the exact moment that they're happening. Um, and there's none of that kind of pause. There's none of that breath um, to, you know, to, to take a moment to decide how you feel about something or how you think about something before just kind of spewing all over the place. Um, so I wondered if you see your substack and your essay writing as sort of an extension of your your place in society or your place in the the social circles that you occupy? I would say that there's a sense in which I definitely don't write only for myself. I, I've, I've never, for example, journaled or kept a private diary. I don't feel the desire to just just record things for my own benefit. I want to feel that there's at least potential that someone out there is reading it, Mm -hmm. even if it's just one other person, even if I'm just writing a letter or something and it has a single reader. But at the same time, I think the writing, I guess, I I recently read Will Storr's book, The Status Games, or The Status Game, I can't remember which the the precise title. And Will is a personal friend of mine, and I... um, Every time I start to say something like this, I think, oh, Will would disagree. Will would say it's all about status. You know, everything we do is a bid for status. But I don't feel it's really connected with social status or position. It's more, I think there are a couple of things. One is that I really just love language and I take a real sensual pleasure in manipulating words. I want to just kind of, dive in and roll around in them. And I think the other part of it is that I find it very, very calming and um, very comforting to, to not just live things, but also describe them. It's a way both of capturing experiences that are otherwise evanescent, and also of, I guess, of for 
uh, a lot of it is a lot of the writing. Um, my personal essays are really um, attempts to forgive myself for bad decisions I've made and bad calls I've made and things that have gone wrong. Um, mostly through my fault. I've actually had a, I've I've had a pretty fortunate adulthood. But I've made a lot of bad decisions, which have led to my life being less successful and less happy than it could otherwise have been. But I think that um, in retrospect, I couldn't have done otherwise at the time. And I find it very, very useful to to go back and re-examine it. It makes me feel, yeah, a sense of greater forgiveness of myself. And of course, with good experiences, it's also like a, a secondary kind of relishing of them, tasting them all over again in the in the act of describing. That's so interesting because I think that really captures a, what I think is special and unique um, and, and wonderful about your writing is that unlike so many people who write essays in this genre, you do not seek validation in your work. Um, you just occupy your perspective and you're thoughtful and, you know, and, and you're very accepting of yourself as sort of the captain of the ship that is your life. And the way that you talk about your experiences, um, you know, whether it's experiences that you've enjoyed or experiences you've regretted or, you know, so often a mix of the two, you're so in control of how you describe it. There's none of this sort of grasping that I think takes place in a lot of other personal essays that sort of quest to say, you know, am I okay? Um, or, you know, wasn't, wasn't this bad? tell me how to feel about my own experiences because I'm not sure that I do. And you don't do that. And it's really refreshing, really, really refreshing to read. So one of the essays that you've posted that I just loved, um, and you know, not just because it's beautifully written, but because it speaks to some very contemporary controversies that kind of obsess everybody who, who occupies this online space where we're all immersed in the discourse and we're all talking usually about power dynamics is called On Sleeping with Younger Men. And I, I especially like that it opens by warning you that it contains spoilers for the film Harold and Maude, which I have not actually seen, but I think I must now. Oh, you must. <laughs> You're in for a treat. <laughs> um, and you, you, know, you write at length and, and quite beautifully and, and with a lot of thought um, about power dynamics in age discrepant relationships. And this is something that we talk about a lot, I, I think, you know, amongst culture writers um, in the wake of things like the Me Too movement, as we start to kind of examine not just men who in positions of, of professional authority might abuse their power, but we start to say like, well, you know, what other ways does power play out? You know, are women always at a disadvantage heterosexual pairing because their partner is going to necessarily be probably bigger, stronger, capable of physically overpowering them? Um, are they at a disadvantage because of the influence of like 3,000 years of patriarchy coming in to weigh on the relationship? Um, and then there's also the question of age. And frequently there is this idea that the person who is older in the relationship, which conventionally tends to be the man, that that person has greater power um, and can be manipulative and, and, and can do harm to the younger partner by virtue of 
having greater age and greater experience. And this is something that I've, I've thought a lot about because I do think that youth does in and of itself convey a form of power, um, especially for women, you know, as you become middle-aged or older, you tend to not just become less influential or less powerful, but also eventually to maybe become a little bit invisible unless you find ways to, to kind of make yourself worthy of notice. And you have a line in this essay that I'm looking for now. Uh, it says, so you've been describing your own relationships, and you say, I often feel as emotionally vulnerable as an adolescent, but without the excuse of youth or the sense of world enough and time to compensate for failure. The younger person is always wealthier in the one currency that can't be accumulated, can't be retained. So I want you to talk more about that and how you came to that important and well-articulated point. Well, I think uh, over the course of three or four years before writing that piece, I had um, I had three. Uh, one of them was quite short and two were sort of six months to a year-ish. I'm not sure what to call them. Things. <laughs> three <laughs> things with um, much younger men. And actually, I've had a couple of other... Uh, in the past, I'd had a couple of other relationships slash flings slash affairs with much younger men. The kind of thing where you're not sure whether the other person uh, is your boyfriend or not. That mm. kind of that kind of ambiguous thing where it's not clear that they definitely aren't, but uh, but it's also definitely not clear that they definitely are. And I think that um, one of the things that that we can't just sort of explain away or try to as i as um one way of putting it would be to we can't just yes queen away our deterioration in um in looks as you get older so it's one thing to say looks shouldn't matter and what should matter should be your confidence and you shouldn't care whether other people find you attractive or not. There's a lot of this kind of discourse in feminism. I call the the sort of yes queen feminism, um, building up and supporting women by telling them you do deserve uh, a relationship with anyone you want and it doesn't matter how you look and it doesn't matter how much you weigh, it doesn't matter how old you are. And of course, you can be lucky in love at any age, weight, and um, and with any kind of appearance. But in terms of your odds and chances of attracting a partner, the younger you are and the more beautiful and the closer to an ideal weight, the better. Of, of course, beauty and weight are both somewhat subjective qualities. But within that kind of proviso, when you are the older party, you are also, first of all, very often the less attractive party, the less physically attractive. And you are simply the less desirable in a, in a general sense. I.e. if both of you, if you were to split up and both of you were looking for a partner, you would have fewer chances of finding a partner than the other person. This is this is definitely true if you're a woman in your 40s or 50s and the man is in his 20s or 30s. That's one kind of imbalance in the relationship which 
is just intrinsic to the fact of it being a sexual relationship. That in a sexual relationship, respect doesn't matter, status doesn't matter as much. What matters is desirability. And a, one key element of desirability is physical attractiveness. So I wanted to, I feel that there's a little, a lot of wishful thinking on this topic. And I wanted to cut through some of that wishful thinking and try to explore the, the discomfort that that realization um, has given me in the past. I think it's very interesting when you mention the sort of the yes queening, um, which is is a great uh, way of kind of capturing that dynamic, that it's often accompanied, you know, in terms of the, the narrative that we are sold by media coverage that claims to be subverting traditional notions of beauty and desirability even as it basically explicitly reinforces them. And what I'm thinking of specifically is there was this recent story, and I don't remember if it was in Glamour or Woman's Day, some some woman's magazine had Hilary Duff posing nude. Hilary Duff is, um, I, I want to say she's in her 30s at this point. I don't think that she's 40 yet. Um, and it was all about how she's finally learned to accept her body her her deeply changed, altered, aging body, the implication being that her body has become hideous somehow, or at least no longer acceptable by, by general societal standards. And then it's accompanied by dozens of photographs of her, you know, in the nude, like wearing a glowy bronzer, looking better uh, at whatever age she is and after having had three children than most women will ever look at any point in their entire lives. (laughs) Did you, did you see this? I haven't seen it. No. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's something, it's a, it's a pressure that exists on women. And I think sort of loosely affiliated with, with feminism or at least sort of feminist narratives that you're supposed to say, I don't care about being beautiful. But then the thing that is presented to you as, um, you know, your argument for not caring includes a, a beautiful woman posing in the nude, looking fantastic, being like, yes, I, you know, I'm hideous now and I've just accepted it. And it's like, this is, uh, this does not make me feel better about myself. It does not make me feel more confident about my ability to move through the world, not being judged by narrow beauty standards or to age gracefully or any of that. I think that it's, um, I was thinking of this in terms of the, that um, song, All About the Bass. Which is kind of a mixture of, first of all, reassuring, reassuring all women that everybody is attractive, everybody is equally attractive, which is just, um, you know, clearly untrue. She says, I'm, I'm here to tell you every inch of you is perfect from the bottom to the top. Um, but, uh, but it's also about being overweight in a way that is still very attractive. Um, and you can, of course, be medically overweight in a way that probably most men will find very attractive. And she says, I've got that boom, boom that all the boys chase, all the right junk in all the right places. 
uh, you know, what if you've got all the right junk in all the wrong places? Yes, really. <laughs> what um, are you supposed to do then? <laughs> and I think that it's, this isn't entirely also only about, only about weight, of course, there's also changes to the face as you are aging. Um, and I think that it's the real, the fundamental problem is the idea that you can be in control of how other people view you. I think this is a really common sort of misconception in today's culture and society that you can and should try to control how other people regard you. Um, And in particular, what you cannot control is whether or not people find you desirable. And if um, if you are happily partnered, it may not matter to you at all whether or not people find you desirable. But if you are single and looking for a relationship, or if you are trying to make a relationship work with a much younger and more beautiful person, then it really does matter. And there's no blame that you can attach to somebody for not finding you desirable. Um, And there is no way in which your own kind of attitude and confidence, of course, confidence is also attractive. So you can kind of up your own desirability a bit by being confident, but only to a certain degree. I think that you can't, it's not something that's under your control and it's something where you absolutely are dependent upon how other people see you. And so that is quite, quite scary. So when you talk about the sense of discomfort with your physical appearance that, that comes from being either single or trying to make a relationship work. I'm curious, did you find that this was, sorry, I'm having a really hard time finding my words this morning. Um, I was I was wondering if you found that to affect you more, um, to have a greater impact when you were in relationships with younger men who were, you know, or, or trying to make relationships work with younger men, these situations where you weren't sure if they were your boyfriend or not. Did you find yourself more preoccupied with your physical appearance in those situations? Um, yes, absolutely. May I um, may I read a little bit from the essay because I think it might be easier. I'm more eloquent in writing than I am uh, speaking. So I wrote um, all three of the much younger men I've been involved with over the past decade were so flawlessly, effortlessly, luminously beautiful that catching sight of my face with its deeply etched crow's feet and asymmetrical Picasso eyes. One eyelid has drooped more than the other, leaving my eyes looking as if they were different sizes, next to a radiantly youthful face. Or my belmange wobbly, wobbly, dimply thigh, next to perfectly taut, coffee-coloured skin stretched over muscle. I felt often like a crone by comparison. One of my lovers confessed that he was embarrassed to be attracted to someone of my age and worried his friends would laugh at him. I was really hurt by this, precisely because I found his feeling somewhat understandable. Oh my gosh, that's the worst, isn't it? When somebody <laughs> somebody manages to hit you in the soft target because it's something that you yourself feel is is true and unattractive about you, and then they manage to say it out loud, and it's like, no, you only I can say that about me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I had um, this is slightly off topic, but. 
something that someone said to me, which has haunted me ever since. Um, uh, uh, a tango student, tango dance student of mine, actually, when I was teaching dance, uh, said to me, you are such a good writer, Iona, and you're also such a good dancer. And he said, it's really unusual to find somebody who is so good at these two different things. This, So far, this is sounding like a humble brag, I know. Um, and it, just as I was feeling really chuffed by this, he said, and yet you have made such a failure of your life. There must be something deeply wrong with you. And I've been just haunted by this, by this observation, which I think also has a lot of truth to it. And I think that there are kind of two very frequent traps that people fall into when they are thinking about their own lives. And one is uh, the victimhood trap, the feeling that your troubles all stem from a, a particular origin story, um, from a hardship or abuse or um, childhood event. Um, there is that kind of trap of helplessness. And there is the other trap, which is the one that I fell into and am much more temperamentally inclined towards, which is to feel as though um, the regret trap, to feel that your things that have gone wrong are absolutely your own fault. I guess that writing is one of the ways in which I get past that regret into more curiosity and um, curiosity kind of brings brings forgiveness and equanimity with it. Interesting. I'm curious, the person who said this really quite cruel thing to you, um, was he himself a very successful person? Yes. I think that that's telling. You know, I think that when somebody says something like that, it really doesn't have much to do with you. Um, it's more that they're using you to feel a certain way about themselves. And in, in a case like that, I would imagine that this man felt insecure about being in a position of unearned success and did not like the idea that part of what he had was down to either luck or, you know, the generosity of others. And so to, you know, to, to see somebody who is gifted and wonderful, but not as successful, it requires him in order to still feel good about himself to say, you're not successful because something must be deeply wrong with you because I'm successful. And that means that something is deeply right with me. Yeah, maybe. I mean, usually when people uh, people like to talk about themselves more than they like to talk about other things. Um, and so often, even when they're supposedly talking about another person, they're really talking about themselves. But that I think that the motivation for saying it doesn't change the truth value or otherwise of, of what he said. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe strongly in the Quaker thing of truth from any source. It can be easy to kind of uh, pop psychoanalyze away um, information that we don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May be true, and the thing itself may also be insightful, nevertheless. Hmm. I think you're giving him a little too much credit, but you know that's okay. He's <laughs> you know, he's not here. He was actually a person who was very kind to me in some quite material ways. So unfortunately, I can't dismiss him as a as a wanker. Um. <laughs> that makes sense. And it reminds me of, oh, I don't know, uh, 
men who I've known, and this was this was a thing that I found to be common amongst teenage boys more than amongst adult men. I haven't had anybody do or say it to me in quite a while, but guys who would who would pride themselves on being quote unquote honest, and it would usually be uh, an excuse to just say incredibly cruel cutting things that that may have been partially true or even all the way true but were sort of unnecessary um and i guess maybe this comes down to a difference in one's approach to honesty where you know on the one hand you have as you were saying the quaker thing of of truth from any source and on the other hand you have the approach that says before you say this you should ask yourself if it's if it's useful at the very least um you know, and maybe also, is it kind, but mostly is it useful? I think that's that's why it's it's the sort of personal essay is a really nice genre, um, because the one thing that you can be completely, completely honest about without asking, is this useful and is this kind, is yourself mm-hmm. and your own experiences. And a friend of mine actually uh, said to me recently, he said, I have I have not been as frank with anyone as you have been on many occasions with the entire planet, um, <laughs> meaning in, in published writings. And I think that that's, it's, it's a very difficult discipline to write honestly. It's surprisingly difficult. And of course, we all deceive ourselves all the time. So you can think you're being honest and you're actually lying about things. But it's also just very, very tempting to um, not just to embroider. And I've always been an inveterate embroiderer of stories. I have to really, really exercise a lot of discipline not to kind of exaggerate and add nice details that didn't actually happen. But also, um, it's really easy to put a gloss on things, which is either making yourself look better than you are, or making yourself look worse. And both are equally kind of narcissistic. Both are kind of equal traps <laughs> laying in wait for you. And now, are you as frank and unsparing with other people as you are with yourself? Yes and no. So um, I am as when I'm, I am as an editor, I'm very, very frank. And um, I think that being a copy editor is a little bit like being a dominatrix in some ways. You know, you've given your essay to me, expect a bit of punishment. But it's also, um, I have quite a disagreeable personality in the in the sense of the ocean, um, the ocean personality scores. I score pretty high on disagreeableness. And I sort I've always found it difficult to resist if I think something is factually wrong or qualitatively bad in someone's writing for example or also when I was teaching dance um, or when I was teaching literature I found it very hard to refrain from kind of pointing it out even when I know it's not helpful (laughs) Um, I really struggled when I was an academic I struggled with classroom teaching I did a lot of training um, in teach. I did teacher training and I also went to lots of courses and did all the things that were suggested. But my own personality kept peeking back out. And my personality is not, I'm not a cheerleader. Um, I'm a critic and I can be quite a harsh critic. 
So now to return to the question of um, you know these relationships that you had with younger men that you've now written about um, in this sort of uh, you know backward looking contemplative way, how did those end? Or I mean, did they all end the same way? I should ask because there were several of them. Well, two of them ended with uh, the guy breaking it off, and one of them ended when I left geographically left mm-hmm. um, the place where I was staying. I think that uh, uh, the other part of the discomfort for me in these relationships is that they really showed up the mismatch between my biological age and my kind of emotional age in relationships, that I am very needy in relationships, in love relationships. I really find it very difficult to be single. And I have a, a an anxious attachment style, I guess. In romantic relationships, I have a lot of close friends, and so I don't feel as though I am in need of more friends. Um, but I do really, uh, really pine, and um, I, I yes, I, I really do kind of lament and pine and feel sorry for myself a lot um, when I'm when I don't have. A boyfriend in my life. I also find it really hard to face being broken up with. I think I have a lot of difficulties dealing with disappointment in general, but um, it's almost like a kind of temporary um, mental handicap that I go through. I can feel my IQ just lowering. <laughs> you know, I can feel myself regressing and it's it feels to me especially ugly and inappropriate in somebody of my age <laughs> you, you know <laughs> interesting so do you find that or did you find that these elements um, of your attachment style and your personality. And I mean, I, I feel that you are being very hard on yourself. You've described yourself now. It's like, I'm disagreeable and needy. And when I get into a relationship, my IQ drops. Oh, oh, but I do feel that being disagreeable is not a not necessarily a bad thing. It means that I'm not well suited to be a teacher, but I think it's a really good quality in an editor and writer. And even in a podcast or an interviewer in many ways, the disagreeableness also comes from a commitment to the true over the comfortable. I think that makes sense. So to to return to this question, Mm -hmm. um, did you find that being with younger men exacerbated this for you uh, in a way that you didn't like or that was um, ultimately deleterious to the relationships? Yes, yes and yes. I think there's a a feeling I had that on the one hand, this person is so much younger and therefore I should be the more mature one. But I also felt like the more vulnerable party in the relationship and therefore the more kind of emotionally immature. Interesting. Um, So you had like all of the all of responsibility, but none of the power. um, I didn't even I didn't have the responsibility, really, except in my own mind. Mm -hmm. It just felt like childishness in somebody who is a child is one thing. Um, and this kind of a, a emotional sort of childishness in someone who's in their 50s <laughs> is quite another. For me, relationships are like a different emotional territory to the rest of life. So I'm really 
fascinated by people like my own, my close friend, Diana Fleischmann, who are polyamorous and do ethical non-monogamy and stuff, and for whom, therefore, there is this kind of just continuum between friendship, friendships and love relationships. There is absolutely no continuum for me. The love mm-hmm. relationship is a completely different animal. I was wondering, as you were talking about the way that certain dynamics or certain personality aspects become drawn out by an age discrepant relationship between a man and a woman where the woman is the older. Have you read the book Cherie by, I think it's Colette, the the French writer? Yes, yes. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the dynamic in that book? For those who are uninitiated, Cherie is a younger man who becomes involved with a a sort of a, a, she's like a courtesan. I'm not sure how to describe her. Like she's like a prostitute, but but much classier. And in, um, what is it, like 17th or 18th century France, she's a woman who has always made her living and, and you know, her success has relied entirely on her, her physical appearance and her ability to be a seductress. And, um, you know, obviously that wanes with age, except in this one sort of moment where she is able to become an object of lust, but also not quite a maternal figure, but something sort of approaching that to this young man. And for a brief moment, they're sort of enthralled to each other. And then the power shifts just a little bit and just enough for it to become very ugly and to end very badly. It's been years since I read Colette. Uh, something I've read more recently, which has a somewhat similar dynamic, is it, um, in the novel A Suitable Boy, there is a relationship between um, a much younger man and uh, an older courtesan. I believe he is like 20 and she is in her 40s. It's one of those situations in which her livelihood depends on her being, she won't be able to marry this young man. It's His family will never allow that. That will be impossible. And he knows that, but at the same time, he wants to have an exclusive relationship with her. But her livelihood depends on her um, being able, sleeping with um, a lot of different men. Um, and so this, his kind of passion for her, this possessiveness, rubs up against her need for professionalism. And she is also quite, um, she is very mindful of the age gap between them. And she she sees the relationship in itself as having a sell-by date, a cutoff for that reason, that there will come a moment at which she will no longer be attractive to him. Um, and so she has to continue with her with her livelihood, because that that's her future. When she's no longer desirable as a prostitute, she will continue to, she's a musician, she will continue to make music and entertain men that way. And she will hope to amass enough money to, to keep her in her old age. But she can't, um, one of the reasons she doesn't take a risk on this young man is because of her feeling that her, her beauty is just, she's just enjoying the last years of that desirability before mm-hmm. it goes that she's just in the kind of autumn um, of that and 
I do think that there is a, an imbalance between men and women here. And there is much more of a sense of a kind of cutoff point for women, that it's one thing to be an attractive woman in your early 40s. And it's quite another thing to be an attractive woman in your early 60s. Yes, that's very true. Um, I was just thinking of this in terms of my uh, my my husband, um, you know, is one of these guys who was already very, very handsome. And now as he gets older, continues to become even more handsome with every passing year, which seems very unfair to me because I, you know, contemporaneously am, am turning into a potato a little bit more with every passing year. And I'm like, uh, we're on discrepant paths, you know, as he's going to only get more attractive. And I think that men often, and I don't know if it's, if it's actually an objective thing, or if this is something that society, like a gift that society has given to them, that they're allowed to continue to be sexy and maybe to even increase in sexiness as they move into middle age or past middle age, um, whereas women are on the opposite trajectory. I have no kind of hard and fast evidence for this, um, but I'm skeptical of the extent to which society can influence things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think society can influence how we talk about men and women, men's and women's attractiveness, and also the roles that we cast each other in. Society can induce people to manufacturers to put um, older models in their catalogs, for example, um, or to cast older actresses in sexy roles, but. I don't know to the extent to which society can influence your individual choice of your individual feeling. It's it's not a not a choice really of who you find attractive. I think that that is probably much less malleable. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's as as simple. Uh, and as base as a sort of an evo psych thing where, you know, men remain able to father children for longer than women are able to have them. And so one's virility is directly tied to one's perceived measure of attractiveness. Yes, quite possibly. I do think, though, that there is an interesting phenomenon with people who grow old together. Um, so my sister... Um, and her boyfriend, they were sweethearts when they were in their teens. And then they broke up and they didn't see each other for decades. And then they got back together. Um, I think they were in their 40s when they got back together, mid 40s, both of them. Mm -hmm. And um, now they are both in their 70s. I, th I believe she's 71 and he's 72, something like that. And I can really tell from the way that he talks about her and his whole attitude towards her that when he looks at my sister he sees the 19 year old he sees the the 19 year old face and body at one level of course he's not you know he's not psychotic he sees the <laughs> reality as well um my sister is 70 and she looks 70 you know uh, she's not some miracle of nature who's an exceptionally attractive 70-year-old. But I I get that sense that he sees the younger woman. And I do notice this in my friends. Um, I haven't been blessed with a relationship that's, that's 
started in my teens and that is going strong today. But I have noticed with old close friends that when I see them, I know that they've grown older if I haven't seen them for a while. You know, I hadn't seen one of my friends for a while. And and now when I last saw him, he had a salt and pepper hair and now his hair is white and his beard is white. Of course, I noted that there was a moment of sort of shock, which was, gosh, he looks old, therefore I must also be old. Mm -hmm. That can't be, you know, this kind of shock and disbelief. But a very small moment. And then it really, it was as though beneath that, I can still see the teenager. Um, I have a really strong sense of the kind of lineaments of the teenager. I'm like a kind of archaeologist looking at a site and just reconstructing in my imagination what it was like in its heyday. And it's the effects of aging just have this, just have the effect of increasing a a tenderness um, towards him, towards my friends. I don't know if that's something that, that one can really access easily in a relationship where there's a large age difference. But perhaps that is one of the secrets to people who make a relationship with a much older person work for them. You mentioned in your essay that you are now happily coupled with uh, somebody who's closer to you in age. Um, And this is somebody that you that you met relatively recently? Is that right? Um, Yes, two years ago. Yeah, so I I don't know if this will be forever because it's quite early on, but this is a serious relationship. Um, he insists that he is a toy boy because he's I was born in May and he was born in December. Oh, it's um, a May December relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but there is six months of every year he is a toy boy. He is officially the younger man. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure he really enjoys that. Yes, he does. It's interesting in many ways. One is that he is the oldest person I've ever dated. Um, Even though I have been in relationships with men who are quite a bit older than me, that was when I was also a lot younger. So in in terms of actual just physical years, he is the oldest person. Um, There are quite a lot of aspects of him, which I wonder, is this personal to him or is it just a function of being a man in his 50s I do get the sense of the kind of new beginning like we can start from here because we're both starting from the same point I know that's that's um, sort of an image I have in my mind of us both setting out on a on a journey um, or having taken a little bit of a rest and now setting out again on a on a kind of new journey that says the second swim setting out for our second swim now when you were in relationships with men who were older than you as a younger woman did you have a sense then that you had power um you know in your in your youth in the same way that when you were older and seeing younger men you sensed that they had the the greater power by virtue of their youth i think yes and no um Mostly no, but I did have a few inklings of it. That kind of feeling of I'm more attractive than you, a really kind of crude and awful thing to be thinking about the lover who you're with. I think that I had a few moments of feeling that in kind of, you know, when we were arguing or I was feeling angry with them, I thought, 
I'll leave you and I will easily find another boyfriend. I absolutely don't feel that way anymore. And it's interesting that I think that in some ways in my relationship now, I've I've compromised on certain things that I would have considered non-negotiable requirements even 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. In a sense, you could say that that is settling, but I also think that it's really, it's kind of taught me that those requirements are not what's important. That has been quite empowering. Partly there's this feeling of, a feeling that I have um, always had, a kind of hope that the relationship would save me in some way, would rescue me, because I've frequently been kind of in trouble in my life, struggling to find work, um, struggling to establish a career. I've been kind of hoping for somebody else to be the responsible and caring one. Mm-hmm. And my current boyfriend definitely won't be that. He is also struggling. <laughs> um, and he has absolutely dedicated his life to his passion at the expense of um, real security. He's a chess player. That is his kind of, his obsession. I'm actually going to write a little bit about that is in my, in my Substack as well, the next sneak peek of the next essay, which is called um, Chess and the Skill of Seeing. I think that letting go of that kind of Prince Charming fantasy has actually felt very enriching and it's made me feel more at peace with myself, more kind of generous towards myself. So on the subject of fantasies and letting go of them, I want to return to your essay uh, about sleeping with younger men. And I want to I want to just dwell for a moment on the image that you describe of these older men, and you described them so colorfully, uh, stick-legged, pot-bellied, trembly octogenarians who frequented uh, one of the tango events that you used to attend when you lived in Argentina. Um, And you describe how one of them found a much younger girlfriend, and all of the others sort of lived vicariously through him. It struck me that there was something kind of funny about that, that this one man managed to accomplish this and the others sort of just sat back as though he was the dog that caught the car <laughs> and and had to, you know, reckon with all of the, all that comes after while they were able to just sort of watch this happening. Did Was that the sense that you that you got from observing this happening in real time? Was this man's younger girlfriend all it was cracked up to be for him? Um, or did his friends take a step back because they saw that there were trade-offs to it? I think the friends were still try- actively... I think it's less that they lived vicariously uh, through him than that he showed them that it was possible. And I think that they were became more optimistic about their kind of dream of getting a younger girlfriend um, and so they were ogling and chatting up uh, younger women at the at the Malongas, at the dance events and things, and kind of fantasizing and hoping and comparing, because I sometimes overheard some of their chat um, <laughs> and size, sizing up the women as if they were in with a real chance of, of you know, uh, nabbing one of them. 
And I think they really weren't in with a realistic chance. Um, but there was enough of a chance that it gave them some kind of a, a sort of a hope. Um, and I have noticed this in other older bachelors too, that I think that more men than women um, find it easy to be single into old age. I think some women um, begin to find it easier because they sexual desire fades and therefore uh, it becomes more about companionship. And as long as they have a close friend or two around them, um, they can be they can become quite content because they've lost that need for the lover. But for many men, I think it's also the kind of the fantasy um, is enough to keep them going, as it were. So it's almost as though, you know, yes, queen doesn't work, but yes, king. <laughs> yes, king does. can work. Yes. <laughs> can work. <laughs> can work. Yes. Well, the thing about yes, queen is it's uh, sometimes it's telling people that they're perf- that they're happy single. And I think it does help uh, some people to be happy single if there is a societal kind of message that you can be. But uh, only some people you know, I will never be completely happy single. Maybe I will in old age if that is my fate. But I don't think I will ever be happy single no matter what the societal message is. But also I think that Yas Queen suggests in its worst incarnations, what it suggests is you can behave like a total bitch and um, people will, you'll still be able to find a loving and worthwhile relationship with a really great guy. And I think that is unrealistic. I think that that's a, a good life lesson and a solid place for us to end. Um, I'm so excited to read more of your work on your Substack. Uh, for those who are interested in subscribing, Iona's Substack is at Dr. Iona Italia. So D-R-I-O-N-A-I-T-A-L-I-A dot Substack dot com. Yes. And if you just uh, Google Substack and The Second Swim, you'll also find it there. Wonderful. Iona, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kat. This has been Feminine Chaos. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more like it, please consider subscribing to the Feminine Chaos Substack at femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 a month, you'll get access to premium content, including extended cuts of public episodes, as well as exclusive episodes just for paid subscribers. We thank you for your support.